Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Jeffrey Gibson. The Brooklyn Museum is showing Jeffrey Gibson when fire is applied to a stone, it cracks. An exhibition in which Gibson selected artworks and archival material from Brooklyn's collection to be shown with his recent work. It was organized by Gibson and Christian Ayn Crouch with assistance from a Brooklyn Museum curatorial team and will be on view through January 10th, 2021. Gibson will also be in several soon-to-open group exhibitions, including Cross-Pollination, Heed, Cole, Church, and Our Contemporary Moment, which opens at the Cummer Museum in Jacksonville on October 28th before traveling to Olana State Historic Site and Thomas Cole National Historic Site in Catskill and Hudson, New York, respectively, and to Crystal Bridges in Bentonville, Arkansas. Gibson is also in Radical Tradition, American Quilts and Social Change, which opens at the Toledo Museum of Art on November 21st. Gibson, who is of Choctaw and Cherokee descent, often addresses America's past and present by bringing elements of Native American craft and art to his paintings, sculptures, and installations. Gibson was awarded a MacArthur Foundation Genius Fellowship in 2019. On the second segment, Jess T. Dugan at the Minneapolis Institute of Arts. As always, it would be wonderful if you could give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. And it would also be great if you told a friend you enjoy the show. Thanks much. Jeffrey Gibson, after the break. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, is collaborating with Duke Arts and Duke Health to present an unprecedented outdoor exhibition and public awareness campaign by nationally renowned artist Carrie Mae Weems. Resist COVID Take Six emphasizes the disproportionate impact of the deadly virus on the lives of communities of color through large-scale banners and window clings, billboards, posters, street signs, and more. Resist COVID Take Six has taken shape on the exterior walls and windows of the Nasher Museum and Rubenstein Arts Center at the front gate of Sarah P. Duke Gardens and the Carpentry Shop, home of the MFA in Experimental and Documentary Arts. Resist COVID Take Six allows the Nasher Museum to present an impactful outdoor art experience safely during the COVID-19 pandemic. Later in the fall, Resist COVID Take Six will extend into the surrounding community. The Nasher Museum is temporarily closed for the health and safety of all visitors. The museum is available by appointment to Duke faculty and students. Visit nasher.duke.edu. This fall, Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Made in L.A. 2020, a version, in partnership with the Huntington Library, Art Museum, and Botanical Gardens. The fifth edition of the Biennial, which highlights artists working throughout greater Los Angeles, features new installations, videos, films, sculptures, performances, and paintings, many commissioned specifically for Made in L.A. The exhibition will show the 30 artists at both institutions, two versions that make up the whole. Made in L.A. 2020, a version, on view this fall at the Hammer and the Huntington. Find details and sign up for updates at hammer.ucla.edu and at huntington.org. Exploring the trajectory of abstract art made during the 20th century, Small Abstractions at Sheldon Museum of Art highlights a great strength of the museum's holdings and explores moments when color, line, geometry, and gesture, not figural form, serve as the subject of painting. Often associated with large canvases and dynamic brushwork, abstract art in America, as seen in this installation, took on many forms, including instances where artists chose deliberately to work on a smaller scale. The exhibition includes work by synchronists Stanton McDonald Wright and Morgan Russell, 
members of the American Abstract Artists, such as Burgoyne Diller, Alice Trumbull Mason, Ad Reinhardt, and Joseph Albers, as well as Pearl Fine and Nicholas Carone, known for their participation in Abstract Expressionism's The Club. Small Abstractions highlights the rhythms and geometries that this group of artists employed to formulate their own interpretation of non-figural or abstract art. For more information on Small Abstractions, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. And we're back. Jeffrey Gibson, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. Let's start with Brooklyn, because in the first gallery of the show, you set up a pretty pointed throat clearing about the 19th and early 20th centuries and who made what. The gallery includes four sculptures in bronze, all by white Americans, and a work of yours, along with material culture made by various indigenous people from around the country in the late 19th or early 20th centuries. So before we talk about those four sculptures and and what they show, why did you want to play white American-produced bronze off of indigenous-produced beads and hide? Well, there was a trajectory about the concept of the show and how to choose objects. And the very first proposal, because it's split up between two galleries, the very first proposal was to do images of Native people by Native people. And in the other gallery, we would do images of Native people made by non-Native people. And that was going to form the core of the show, conceptually. So those bronzes, you know, when you're looking through the catalogs, you're not always really looking at the dimensions. And then I realized how small they were. And it became a challenge to think about what are the, just kind of formally, what are the anchor pieces of the show? In that collection of bronzes was the Charles Rumsey sculpture, which at that time was sitting out in the parking lot, at the back of the parking lot outside. You know, I've been paying attention to the Fraser end of the trail sculpture for the majority of my life. And this sculpture is very, very similar and in terms of ideas as well. And I think also that sculpture appeals to Western enthusiasts. I think over the course of the time since they were made, the way that people read them, it's a kind of backwards honor to Native people, to the warrior, to the warrior that's fought hard, but ultimately loses and ultimately becomes a symbol of indigenous civilizations moving into the past and disappearing. And so this was my chance to bring it indoors. And once the museum agreed, that established that first gallery immediately, especially because I knew it was the piece that came together so clearly, so quickly in terms of the idea of the bronze, the idea of these images of Native people by non-Native people. And so I think ultimately that gallery pretty much holds that first premise in terms of how to choose objects and became the starting point for the rest of the show. It struck me that you played bronze, which within the American, especially 19th century tradition, is a material used in memorial sculpture to indicate something that is over or ended or deceased against material culture and indeed your own work that was made at the same time as those bronzes were, thus pointing to how that culture was very much not deceased. (laughs) You know, somebody was asking me the other day about this show, and is it something that I could have done previously, not just for permissions reasons and things like that, but 
as an artist, could I have conceived of this show 20 years ago? And I said that, yes, I've wanted to do this show for a long time. And the fact that the Brooklyn Museum invited me and then facilitated it and, and supported it was is wonderful. But I have to go back and remember that this idea of concurrent histories and that how we don't acknowledge them as concurrent or being relevant to each other is something that I've thought about for 20 years now, 20 plus years. So what you're saying is correct, but it's it's not where my brain operates from today. There's this assumption that I'm, I still look at things and I look at the dates and then I very quickly go like, like, wow, these two things happened at the same time and somehow nobody ever connected how directly or indirectly they impacted each other. And I still do that today, you know, looking at what's going on in 2020. So that is just sort of a way that I, I guess, think about objects and their histories. The other thing that struck me about this gallery is that the three sculptors feature two Anglos, Charles Carey Rumsey and Alexander Feimeister Proctor, and one German-born sculptor who worked in the United States, Adolf Alexander Weinman. It struck me that you may have been making an argument here pointing directly to Anglo-Saxonism, the, the kind of ideology that originates in Europe before the 19th century, but comes to the United States in the 19th century and becomes how white supremacy is intellectualized here. This is all a long way of asking, were you specifically pointing at, at how Anglo-Saxonism developed arguments around white supremacy and racism in the United States within this gallery? No, I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that that was my thought process. But then I have to also say that, like, yes, <laughs> because, <laughs> because that's kind of just the way that I see most things. I mean, even in terms of the modeling of the figures in these bronzes, this goes back to the original premise of images of Native people by non-Native people. These people don't really exist. The individuals in these bronzes don't really exist. They are based on a person or people, but really they are the creation from somebody's imagination. And their role as an artist, those sculptors as artists at the time were serving a particular audience. And that criteria that determines whether it is a good sculpture or not a good sculpture in terms of material and form and what it represents, you know, it wasn't speaking to me. It wasn't speaking to Choctaw people in Mississippi and it wasn't speaking to Cherokee people or, or even native people. So I think in that sense, what you're saying, yes, is absolutely true. And I probably observed and accepted that 20 years ago. And so now when I look at things, it's sort of like, I always think about it, it's like playing with like little bombs. I know everything is totally charged, but my goal as an artist in my process is really, if I look at them in such a heavy way, I can't play with them. But if I play a game with myself of just kind of knowing that they're loaded, I can play. And that's kind of how I, that's just how I work. It's what enables me to work. The work of yours in this opening gallery in Brooklyn is one of your works that uses beads within it. You've been working with beads since at least 2004, 16 years ago. In the first works of yours, I know you're making, and we'll have an image or two of these on manpodcast.com. You're making abstract paintings of forms that do or could come from nature. There are lots of references to leaves or unopened flowers. And then these early works include some, forgive my inevitably clunky description, 
beaded abstractions on the top of the painting or on, on, on top of the surface of the canvas as well as around the edges of the painting, and they extend a bit beyond the rectangle. And so the beading only covers, I don't know, 10 or 15 percent of, of, of the object max. And of course, in the years to come in your career, the beading will emerge as more and more of the work. So two questions about all this. The first, going all the way back to 2004. What about joining beading to representations from or inspired by nature do you remember liking back then? Well, those particular paintings were a mashup of a few things. One, I was looking at Martin Johnson Heed's paintings of just this kind of total visual intoxication with a landscape and flowers. So that was one thing I was looking at. The other thing was turn-of-the-century Iroquois beaded whimsies. Those whimsies were of interest to me because they were using a traditional technique, raised beadwork, and they were trying to appeal to a Victorian audience. So taking this kind of beadwork that is sculptural in form and trying to replicate flowers and paisleys that you might find in European fabrics of the time in order to create a new market that appealed to Victorian non-Native people. Now, what happened with those whimsies, the whimsies, some of them are so overbeaded that they almost become visceral and I'm going to use the word grotesque because they're drippy, they're too much, they are an aesthetic which is literally just kind of gregarious. And I've seen some baskets where the beadwork is so much that it has, you can't lift the lid off. And so it was between those two things that I thought, you know, I want to paint a landscape and I want these beads. And those are actually silicone, those first ones. They're colored pigmented silicone. And I wanted to make them like these kind of specimens from this intoxicating kind of lush landscape of of the unknown and so they sit on the surface like they're clusters of fungus beautiful pearly fungus they're dripping off like vines and they're kind of growing beyond this imagined surface of the painting so that was the beginning of it those whimsies have remained i've collected a number of them at this point And they're really where I learned it's the beadwork that I mimicked that has eventually evolved into what is still part of the work today. A couple things about those paintings. Anybody familiar with 19th century American painting thinks immediately of Heed, not because of the compositions or because you're borrowing directly from him, but because the colors and the tone in your paintings conjure Heed. And hearing you talk about the beading on those paintings reminds me of how much the way you use the beads on those paintings remind me of Larry Pittman's address of the decorative and the way he drapes. I mean, he's using paint, but the way he drapes things across his paintings in the late 80s and 90s in a really interesting way. So as you look back over these 16 years, a period during which the beading slowly came forward and then rushed forward. Were you consciously, intentionally trying to find ways to increase its presence within each object? Or is that more process-based? Did that that just happen as you were in the studio using your hands? It was intentional and process. I was making process-based abstract paintings prior to 
this big shift. When I was making the paintings, I was thinking about applying the paint the way that you would a warp and a weft or a grid that you would find in weaving or a diagonal patterning that happens in basket weaving. I was thinking about beadwork and objects that I had worked with at the Field Museum in the early 90s. You worked there for three years as an intern while you were at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Yes. You know, there was a lot of holes. I remember having a conversation with somebody in collections about the holes that you see in some of the garments. And they shared with me how you could tell the difference between a hole that was used to tan the hide versus a bullet hole. And that the bullet holes were things that, you know, if there was blood, it would have been cleaned off. So there was this idea of taking that information and putting it into abstract painting language. And when I started showing those paintings, the content that drove my decision making did not translate to viewers. And to me, the story was really what was important. And I felt that I was trying to be very committed and loyal to that story. But again, it just wasn't translating. So people were seeing histories of abstraction, which oftentimes tends to lean towards formalism. So the big shift for me was to choose materials that explicitly directed people toward these, towards these narratives. And that was really the choice to start working with beadwork. And I think I had always loved beadwork. I've always loved basketry and weaving. But again, those being classified as craft, those being pigeonholed as native craft, I think are things that I was, you know, kind of decidedly choosing not to do. So when I say it happened in process, it was literally the first punching bag that just sort of the audience who saw that bag connected very clearly to the narrative that I was hoping to get across. And it was it was like being acknowledged for the first time. And then it really became intentional. So what's what what jumps out at me about that narrative is, okay, so those early paintings we've been talking about, 2004. In 2008, you made a series of paintings with, for lack of a better word, horizontal and vertical stripes, diagonal stripes, banding. And they're terrific paintings full of energy and mark-making. My uh, <laughs> formalist notes associate them with, say, Charlene von Heil or Albert Olin. But now in hearing you talk about weaving and its importance, I guess I wonder if those horizontal, vertical, and diagonal bands are a reference to, to weaving. They were, at that point, a reference to a grid that originally came about from weaving. But it's interesting, you know, Charlene von Heil, Albert Olin are also entirely the painters who I was looking at at the time and who I think are great painters. And I think, again, it's sort of like in process trying to find a way to be a part of the contemporary art world and the conversations in the contemporary art world that were truly exciting to me, that I felt like this these histories needed to be a part of and disappointed that they weren't. So that became kind of the challenge of what language do I need to invent to kind of claim that space. That really directed, I suppose, the process over the next, you know, 15 years. The same year, 2008, you had a show at the Kentler International Drawing Space in Brooklyn. And I don't know if that was the first time 
you you moved off of the wall mounted rectangle and into three dimensional space was it was it close it was close. There was a couple of paintings that had these large, large spills that came off of them in 2006 and seven. But yeah, that was the beginning. That those two pieces, I, I they were. I mean, I I love those two wall pieces. And yeah, that was around the time when it all started. So that seems like a really crucial moment where where you know the work had been as we talked about three dimensional before that, but here it flies away from the rectangle. Did you become, you know, not disillusioned, but did did you find that the rectangle couldn't hold the ideas you wanted to express? What motivated you off of the wall-mounted rectangle and into installation space and what eventually became a broader range of media? I think it was really the material. I've taught painting for, you know, nearly 20 years at this point in some form, painting, drawing. And the idea of the two-dimensional space which historically is, you know, rectangular, is, and this is what I always tell students, I was like, you're collecting a bag of tricks to create an illusion of a space. And I think I truly believe that, you know, we painters, we create a kind of window into this world with that rectangle. And for me, it was the fact that I can create the illusion or I can use the actual material that I'm referring to. And that relationship between the illusion and the material became important enough for me to start, if I could use the material, just going directly to it. So if it was wood, if it was beadwork, if it was hide, rather than painting it, just use it. And then all of those things have their own kind of integrities as materials. You know, hide, for instance, has been one of the most, it has its, it has its own mind and you, you can't really make it do certain things. So then you know, for instance, again, with Hyde, it leads towards sculpture because Hyde really wants to move. It also leads towards sound. It leads towards translucency and light in a certain way. So that kind of shifted. And I think that's really where my kind of addiction, it also maybe placed painting for me more specifically, that there are times when it has to be paint. And and also, I, tr- I truly love painting. It's where I started and, and I continue to love painting today. The recent work often feels like you're painting with beads, even as you're bringing in text, for example. I want to come back to this kind of 2008 10-ish moment in a second. But speaking of Hyde and the way it feels like it isn't quite holding still, in 2012, you made a series of paintings called Constellations, and they're deer hide on wood with acrylic on them. And they are angled. The, the, the rectangles are leaning forward, if you will. Is that why? Because because the hide felt like it was, I don't know, in action to you in a way? You know, yeah, even today, I still work in a very serial way. And so even if I'm starting a series of paintings, you know, I'll always say, like, we're going to start with 15 paintings with the assumption that 10 of them might work. And that gives me some freedom. With those hide pieces, what I wanted to do was to create a series of 20 that kind of held a similar DNA with each other. I didn't want to do a rectangle, I think, to sort of just break the kind of tradition of everything always being rectangular. And I wanted to, the hide itself, I mean, the thing about hide, when you look at the hide, and especially in those pieces, it's interesting. There are bruises in the hide, there are hair follicles, there are scars in the hide, there are scrapes in the hide from the defleshing. So even though they're all the exact same shape, they all are 20 different animals. And there's something about that, just wanting to 
kind of make decisions that distanced myself from the tradition of painting. And also I thought of them in an installational way that when you came into the room, I wanted them to feel directional as you looked at them from left to right. And so when they were first installed at the ICA in Boston, it was a beautiful three wall installation that just kind of wrapped around the room and you felt this kind of forward lean. And that's about as far as my brain went with that. Well, it's, you know, it's those years where, where you're finding your way off the wall. And so something about that lean, you know, reads like you're keeping a foot in, in paint while, while, while your head is kind of pointing it, you know, while you're tossing your head to the right and pointing it. I love those pieces. But in retrospect, you know, my work tends to be every color in the crayon box and then you've got beads on it and a frame and, you know, text and there's a lot going on. Those paintings allowed me to, like, really consider minimalism in a way that I haven't in a very long time. And, you know, so some of them just have, like, four passes of color. But it's the layering of the color and the transparency that allows for multiple shapes to show up. And that was important to me conceptually. But it was really scary for me to start making works on Hyde. Why? Why? Well, just because you feel like here I am, this Native American guy, and I'm going to do paintings on Hyde. I'm like one step away from, from a drum, you know? It's like, it, these are all the things that you you feel like, and, and I'm sure, you know, it's, it's a, lot of, a lot of internal things going on over the years, too, and the, my practice has been very cathartic for me and healthy. But at the time, you know, the last thing I thought I'd be doing is making paintings on Hyde. Yeah, it just never seemed like the decision towards putting myself in that conversation. It seemed like the decision towards putting myself in that conversation with other painters or other contemporary artists. Somehow I was supposed to use the same materials. So whenever I would show those, those pieces, it was always a shock to me that it seemed to open up conversations very quickly for other people. And it gave me space to respond as an individual, as opposed to speaking on behalf of all Native people, which is its own problem. I have sort of a question about that in a second, but while we're talking about Hyde, quite simply, how did you happen to have Hyde? I mean, did you go out, I mean, you, you know, you were buying canvas at, you know, ye old art supply store, but how did you come to have the opportunity to work on Hyde, to find it, to go look for it? You know, I think probably even a year and a half or so before those pieces were made, I had ordered some Hyde just to play around with it. I just wanted to see what it did. And there were some pieces that existed before then that were never shown. And they were hides that, because basically when you get a hide wet, it becomes like the consistency of latex or rubber. And then when you hang it on the wall, it dries how it wants to dry. And so the thicker parts will dry in one way, the thinner parts will dry in one way, and it continues moving. So that to me was, was of interest. But then finding a way to actually control it for lack of a better word, by stretching it over a wood panel. We had some hide that split the wood panels that they literally just broke them because the hide is so strong. Yeah, so it took some time to... What really married me to it, though, is it's it's such a beautiful surface to work on. It has zero resistance in terms of, you know, against a brush. I think the very first pieces were uh, even spray-painted. Yeah, it was... And it also has this ability to position the viewer... You know, if I did those paintings on canvas, you, there's a there's a huge element of how you would look at them that is lost. And you put them on a hide, and even if it doesn't hit the person immediately, 
once you see one hair follicle and you look closer and you suddenly realize what you're looking at, you are completely shifted into a different perspective of looking at painting. And that was something that I had been trying to do through painting for so many years and was unable to. And here the hide did it for me. That was a huge deal. This may be a very technical inside the studio question and answer, and it, it may not matter a lot except for in terms of material construction. But but starting, you know, in these years, these these, these constellation paintings are, as you, as you noted, hide wrapped around wood panel. And you still wrap a lot of things or have a lot of things that sit on wood panel. Is, is that a conceptual thing, a material thing? You like the way it looks? You like the hardness it gives the object? Because it does give all your objects this real stiff firmness, this, this muscularity. How did that become a move that you've, that you've held on to all these years? I don't know. I guess it just sort of happened. I mean, I know with the, with the hide panels, we need to wrap them around something. Because if you wrap them around... Like, for instance, we've tried to wrap them around stretcher bars, and it just torques the stretcher bars, and, and they break. So it really needs, like, a firm board in order to hold its shape. And otherwise, for instance, with wall hanging, sometimes we will do it directly, just as leave it as a hanging textile. And that has some issues in the end when it's time to get it onto the wall, because the, the weight of the fringe or the weight of the beads also wants to kind of cause shape in the way that things hang. Sometimes I like that, and sometimes I really like for it to just sort of sit flatly on the wall. But a lot of it, I suppose, is a real kind of technical decision about, at this point, knowing how a panel sits on the wall versus something something that's going to kind of have its own kind of mind about how it sits up on a wall. So the year after you made these Constellation paintings, you begin the body of work for which you became maybe first and best known? I mean, you were, you were known before these works, but, but these were kind of rocket launchers. They're, they're the works that were made with or included your address of punching bags of the sort one would find in a boxing gym. Were you specifically interested in, in boxing and particularly in joining the ranks of the, the Byron Kims and the Glenn Ligons and Gary Simmonses and David Hammonses who had all made works using punching bags and addressing boxing? I was not initially. And basically that also hits around the time like 2008, 9, 10, where I was really struggling whether I wanted to continue being an artist or not and really questioned walking away. I knew I was a really good educator, and I thought, you know, maybe that's what I'm supposed to be doing is writing books or doing research. I was working with a therapist, and, you know, I went in feeling very, very capable, and I left there feeling just like a wreck. And we ended up working together for five years. And during that time, you know, we discussed everything from basically racism and homophobia in the art world is what it boiled down to. And not just in the art world, but sort of this disconnect between mind and body and these kind of allowances that I would give myself or not, or, you know, just sort of these anxieties. So he is actually the one who recommended that I work with a physical trainer who could work with me to kind of connect into a kind of holistic body presence. And she introduced me to boxing. Um, and she introduced me to boxing as a way to talk about anger and kind of a cathartic way of exercising anger. It was wonderful. It was really liberating. 
And then I just remember working with her and punching and kicking this bag and somehow connecting it to those whimsies, to those beaded whimsies. And I thought, I want a beaded whimsy punching bag. Was it because the punching bags hang from from above? I think I just wanted it to be turned into an ornament. You know, it was this kind of big pendulous body-ish thing. And I just wanted it because I think in the whimsies, I see hope, I see skill, I see strength, I see failure, I see trauma, I see misunderstanding. And that's the body that I identified with. So it was sort of like that first punching bag was sort of like a self-portrait, not in a kind of visual way. I was also thinking a lot about, you know, Louise Bourgeois figures, which I think are just so powerful, the the towel figures, you know. And I've always really responded to dolls made within indigenous communities. Yeah, there was just something about I was just like I was like I almost want to make this figure into a human body. I remember also thinking about there was a Pritzker collection that I saw in London when I was in graduate school. And there were these figures that were made from towels and bed sheets. And it was people had made them in solitary. And this kind of need to create a companion from loneliness was something that I was like, somehow that all made sense to me. I was like, here's my opportunity to make this figure. Yeah, it took about a year and a half to make the first one. And then again, when I when I showed it, so nervous, I was like, was not thinking about any of those artists and just thought, you know, what in the world have I done? I just beat it a punching bag and here we go. And then it was amazing that people responded, not not just not just with empathy or even kind of performed sympathy for me, but really for themselves. You know, they really connected to the narrative of an internal struggle. It, it hasn't worn out for me as a kind of layered object. And now they're strong. I wouldn't say that they are traumatized any longer. And I wouldn't say that they're, they have a strength to them now that is much more kind of confident than, than they were. Have you, did you ever become interest in, interested in how many of your peers, your direct contemporaries, one doesn't have to go back into art history to find this, were also addressing boxing and particularly using punching bags? Over the years, yeah. I mean, there's a collector who owns a Basquiat punching bag. And I remember he was, I went to go visit his collection and he was so proud to show me his collections of artworks that use punching bags. And it was when I saw the Basquiat one, I was like, so excited. (laughs) And, you know, to feel like, I think I understand that, I don't know, that one I think means more to me than a lot of the other ones. Like the other ones, I feel like sometimes the punching bag is a surface, but rarely is it the subject, you know? And I just mean like materially, like the bag itself, the weight of it, the the hanging of it, the wear of it. But yeah, I don't, I don't seek them out. I, I've kind of stumbled across them at different times. Especially within the context of the biographical narrative of how you came to the the thing, is the word Everlast on the bags important? The brand, the word? Initially, the very first one is titled Everlast. And then after that, 
they became an Everlast series and I maintained the word to be there to kind of cohere the series. And it had to do with the word Everlast as a word, as a kind of term of of continuance and survival. And, you know, to go back to the Fraser sculpture, again, it's counter that. That's why I ask. <laughs> yeah. Then at some point I decided I was like, you know, I don't I don't need this anymore. And now they're fully covered and we don't see the word Everlast anymore. Were the, the punching bag works the first time you used beaded text in works? I believe so, yes. I think in 2013 there was a bag titled Believe, Believe. And that, I think, was the first time that I used text. And previous to that, I've always been like, you know, very, very verbose when it came to titling. But like, well, you know, there's still a lot of words in some of your titles. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't mind a sentence or a small paragraph. So there is a 2014 bag called In the Middle. The bag is completely covered with black and white beads. Around kind of the very middle of the bag, there's a line of red beads that circumnavigates the bag and the words in the middle also circumnavigate the bag and where the letters of the words in the middle intersect that red line of beads the beads are often maybe always blue is that a, a, a red white and blue american reference could you talk a little through the decision to in an otherwise completely black and white object bring in such american associated colors you know I can't remember what I was thinking at the time when I made it, but it, it probably would have to be because I know I resist using red, white, and blue. That's why I asked. I noticed this was about the only place I found it. Yeah, and and color is one of those things where, especially red, white, and blue, it's, it's one of the things that I avoid it unless I intentionally mean to do it. And so that's probably, yeah, it would probably have to be because I know I would make a different choice. And and there's been a few times, I mean, you know, obviously to speak to, you know, the United States or to speak to to politics or anything like that. I mean, I generally try to articulate a position that is political as opposed to, you know, a, a kind of pointed political statement. Nearly all of your work addresses in, in, in one way or another the idea of the American nation, but one of the clearest ways in which you've done that, and, and it's related to, to the work we were just talking about, is in the 2019 air quotes flag you made for the Whitney Biennial titled Keep on Moving. It's an address of the form of the American flag, albeit with pointedly different dimensions for areas like the, the star field or the stripes and their proportion to each other, but it's recognizably a riff on the American flag. It's evident in looking at that work that you made a decision to keep the reference to the United States flag within the work. Why was that important? Why did you want to hold on to the reference to the U.S. flag there? You know, I feel like the flag over the last many years has ceased to feel that it represents me. And there have been different times, you know, because I grew up overseas I have been on both sides of either defending or, you know, critiquing American culture. And there have been times when I've been proud to be American and I've been proud to speak in defense of that flag. But over the last few years, you know, I really feel like this is not the flag that represents the America that I 
feel strongly about. I just wanted to speak directly to the people who I think need to be recognized. And it was an opportunity to acknowledge them and to allow people to see themselves who might be feeling similarly in a flag that represents the U.S. or, or you know, refers to the American flag. That's a work with a lot of text in it. We've been talking about the text in the the Everlast, the Punching Bag series. Text in your work explodes in about 2015. And at the same time, painting recedes within your work. Is there a direct relationship there or were other things happening in 2015 and those two things aren't related? You know, there were, there was an increasing desire to be more direct. I felt like the combination of beadwork and text really was the most direct kind of formats and materials in terms of my practice. And I wanted to do shows that were entirely that, you know, those are the works that I really wanted to produce. I just feel like, you know, as we were heading into the 2016 election, a lot of the conversations that we were having with, and I mean that with like, you know, students, friends, peers, had to do with what is our role as artists? How do we have a voice in this conversation and these conversations that were happening at the time and have continued since then? Different kinds of urgencies, different kinds of directness. What role did like abstraction play in this? Did it have a role? Yeah, so I, I think that that was, that was the time when I just felt like that was the most direct thing while maintaining, you know, the kind of integrity of of who I am as an artist. Well, speaking of directness and abstraction, for several years, those words are really clear in your work. The letters are clear. The legibility is high and immediate. But, you know, by 2018, by 2019, in works such as When Fire is Applied to a Stone at Cracks from The Brooklyn Show, the words are becoming less legible and more abstract. Was that process? Or was there another reason you wanted to obscure the legibility of, of the text you were using? I understand what you're saying by obscuring it. I think in my mind, it was making it more specific to the language of of indigenous abstraction in terms of its use of geometry and wanting to kind of encode it into the surface so that it was no longer just sitting on the surface in the same way. I think that, you know, when I look historically at pattern, you know, indigenous patterning, color use, you know, design that maybe has been referred to as decorative. I see integrity and strength and, and storytelling, and I wanted to favor that as opposed to making it the background for letters, or at least I wanted them to hold the same space. So when those paintings started, again, I remember feeling nervous about showing those paintings. But it had to do with the fact that I had fallen in love with paint as this flat color material. You know, after being in love with, you know, drips and, and spills and pores and, you know, and, and, and kind of gestural marks, suddenly I craved this kind of flatness, this surface where everything was sort of able to sit uniformly on the surface. And that's those paintings. And now I can tell you, I'm working on a new series of paintings where that's shifting again, you know, and I'm wanting to find a spatial way of integrating all of this. One of the things that's interesting about that is that 
as this happens around you know 2017 2018 the words getting less legible you're, you're engaging with the abstraction of the letters and then the words you're accepting and fulfilling more decorative commissions such as the stained glass windows you made for wellesley in 2016 i think what about embracing the decorative i mean you know stained glass is as decorative as it gets going back centuries right what about doing that was appealing? Well, I'll tell you, in that, when I was first approached, I was shocked. You know, I was like, really, me? <laughs> it's like, you want me, to, you want me to propose something? And it was other people saying, yeah, like, you know, yeah, we just think you should consider it. And we would like to see, you know, what you would propose. And I was like, okay. And I think because of my history and relationship to, you know, the decorative, I always want to challenge that. I always want to think that I can I can somehow make design that is content driven or things that are beautiful that have content or you know the, it rises as a challenge. And then I met with the artisan who was going to work with me on the the windows potentially at that time. Yeah, I mean he was really excited about my work and the the possibility of it translating and my use of color and his studio is in Guatemala. And he was like, you know, if you come there, he's like, you'll meet the people in Guatemala. They're going to totally understand your use of color and, and how you work. So it kind of became about something. Other. He's also Native American. His wife is Native American, very spiritual people. We got to have conversations about light and presence and spirituality that I don't normally get to have in the art world. The art world really doesn't like to have those conversations. And I just saw it as like, yeah, oftentimes I'll just be like, well, let's just see where it goes. You know, <laughs> like it was hard. It is a really, it is a hard medium that has totally kind of captured me in a way that I, I still am struggling to try to kind of nail it. The last work I want to ask about, and I chose it to be last, not only because it's pretty recent, you made it last year. But because I think it's it holds within it a lot of the things we've been talking about. It's a work called Stand Your Ground. It's a quilt-ish from 2019. It plays with color and abstraction and the decorative tradition and text and a, not a material, but an object that has a, a rich American history in terms of political speech, in terms of keeping people warm at night in all kinds of parts of the country and, 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 and its relationship to abstraction. And so Stand Your Ground is in a, a show in Toledo called Radical Tradition, American Quilts and Social Change that opens later in November. Stand Your Ground, of course, has, has within it a pun. I've gotten the sense here you're not immune to a pun. <laughs> but I guess my, my question about the work is, is, is why was a quilt or something quilt-like something you were interested in addressing, engaging, making? Again, going back over the last, my gosh, well, quilts go back to my childhood. Both of my grandmothers made quilts, and before they passed, both of them were determined to make a quilt for me or to give me a quilt. And also the role that blankets and quilts play within Native communities. It's its a real honor for someone to gift you a blanket. And it's something that, again, I like hide probably – 10 years ago, if you said, oh, one day you're going to make quilts, <laughs> I would have said, no way. There's no way I'm going to make a quilt. And probably one of the most influential exhibitions that I saw was the G's Bend exhibition at the Whitney. Some of those forms are in those 2008 paintings that we talked about. Yeah. 
And it was, I mean, the quilts are amazing and the stories and the narratives are amazing, but it was really, I went to that exhibition a few times and it was really seeing people who were looking at the quilts and how the quilts seemed to really open up. We were looking at them like paintings, right? They're kind of rectangles, irregular rectangles and squares on the wall, but to see people people's response and how they kind of allowed for people to emotionally open up and people who I would assume wouldn't normally do that, you know, and the conversations I would overhear. So of course, then I started paying attention to those quilts, but I also started realizing like weaving, like basketry, those were also coming in to how I was thinking about collage. They were coming into how I was thinking about painting piecework, you know, putting pieces together to make something larger and then textiles, you know, just being able to work with the textiles. And by that point, we had so many scraps from the garments that had been made. And I finally had the material that spoke to me because I had designed it. It had images of my own work in it. It had images of people wearing the garments. It was almost like, again, I didn't have to really think about it. All of that information and history was inherently in the textiles sitting in my studio. So we just started piecing them together. You know, and I, everything always starts this way. I'll ask, you know, I'll lay it on the table and I'll kind of like play with it. And then I'll ask someone to like sew it together or I'll sew together a small patch. And then and then they just kind of grow from there. And at this point, we haven't even really shown. We're just getting ready to start showing quilts. So there are more coming. Oh, yeah. They're in storage. We're doing we'll start showing them in this next year. They are truly I want them, you know, it's like the kind of thing where we look at them and I'm like, I'm like, oh my gosh, I want this one. I want this one. And I think they're wonderful. And probably because again, I'm not referring to a quilt. I've actually made a quilt and they are quilts. And I think to lay under them would be incredible to sleep under them. We've made some really huge ones. I'm also a collector of vintage quilts. And so I've gotten some huge ones and it's just that weight on your body, especially once it's been washed and it's kind of like the batting isn't puffy anymore. It's kind of like, you know, solid. They're physical, physical things. And I think again, to go back to the, the G's Bend ones, you know, their, their kind of history, whether it's perception or real or who knows what's going on, you feel it, you know, you believe it. That to me is rare. You mentioned you collect vintage quilts. Were you, are you interested in the long American history of political messages and symbols being in quilts? Yes, I am. Probably even more than that. I love pictorial weavings that have political imagery and pictorial weavings. Well, that's interesting even of itself to go back to like, you know, quilts made by indigenous people versus non-indigenous people. I think the the political perspectives from the perspective of indigenous communities is something that, whether it was a quilt or a weaving, I'm going to be most excited by because it's more rare. It's something that I have seen less of. Like, it's interesting, you know, I'm always like looking at vintage textiles and things. And if I come across, let's say, there, I've come across some amazing samplers, embroidery samplers, where people have written text you know, they've embroidered text. And the text is sometimes really amazing about an opinion they have about something that's happening late 19th century, early 20th century. And oftentimes I won't get it because it, that's not the perspective I'm interested in right now. 
and it's very rare that I find something that is indigenous made with a perspective that's so clear. It's very rare. Yeah. So that's, those are the things that I'm, I'm most excited by. Last question. Has making quilts scratched your painting itch? Is there a relationship between painting and how you make and how you think through making a quilt? Absolutely. But even more surprising, during the pandemic and all this quarantining over the last seven months, I've taken on three video projects. And the quilts have very directly influenced my editing. And that was a surprise that I didn't see coming. I was like trying to figure out. I couldn't wrap my head around editing. And when I realized the collaging, the cutting and stitching together in a quilt makes the most sense to me when it comes to editing video. There are some old interviews in which, I mean, really old interviews in which you've talked about loving process-based abstraction. And probably for people who've seen a lot of your work in the last five years, they think, oh, that must have gone away. And I think you just described how and why it's still around. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's... It's really the best part of the way the studio is right now is we have an incredible team of people who help produce everything. We're all on site. And what it's allowed me to do is to kind of re-engage with process in a way that it's like I get to kind of experiment and find connections between things and in, in a somewhat non-objective way. I mean, to me, that's really the best part of being an artist is that that is the privilege to be able to do that. Jeffrey Gibson, this has been great. Thank you. Thank you. Since the outbreak of COVID-19, thousands of people around the globe have taken on challenges from Getty and other museums to recreate famous works of art at home. Astonishing in their creativity, wit, and ingenuity, these photographs remind us of the power of art to unite us and bring joy during troubled times. The new book, Off the Walls, Inspired Recreations of Iconic Artworks, celebrates these imaginative recreations, bringing highlights from the Getty Museum Challenge together in one whimsical, irresistible volume. Getty Publications will donate all profits from the sale of this book to the charity Artist Relief. Get your copy at shop.getty.edu. Artist Mark Bradford creates monumental works of abstract painting and collage. The exhibition Mark Bradford End Papers focuses on the key material and fundamental motif Bradford employed early in his career and has returned to periodically over the past two decades, End Papers. At the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth, the exhibition has been extended through January 10th. Information at themodern.org. Welcome back. Next up, Jess T. Dugan. The Minneapolis Institute of Arts is showing To Survive on This Shore, photographs and interviews with transgender and gender nonconforming older adults as part of the MIA's year-long exploration of contemporary photographic portraiture. Dugan produced To Survive on This Shore with their partner, Vanessa Fabre, a social worker and professor at Washington University in St. Louis. The exhibition, which was curated by Casey Riley, is on view in Minneapolis through March 7, 2021. The book related to the project was published by Kara Verlag in 2018. There's also a website, we'll have a link to it, of course, on manpodcast.com. 
Dugan's work is also on view in half a dozen group exhibitions scheduled to be on view around the United States, including Never Done, 100 Years of Women in Politics and Beyond at the Tang Museum at Skidmore College. Jess T. Dugan, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, Tyler. Thanks so much for having me. What started you thinking to yourself? Hmm. Older transgender people are substantially absented from many forms of culture. That's an interesting question. So to answer it, I'm going to take a little bit of a step back. My work as a photographer has always focused on issues of identity. And in particular, I have focused on ideas around gender and sexuality. My earliest work was made within LGBTQ communities that I was a part of in Boston when I was a late teenager and and in my early 20s. And so I had a longer history of working within LGBTQ communities and specifically within transgender and gender expansive communities. So that was part of my practice as a photographer. It's also part of my identity. I identify as queer and non-binary. And that all was part of my work as a whole. So then in 2012, I met my partner, Vanessa Fabre, who is a social worker whose work focuses on LGBT aging. And we realized fairly quickly that although we were in different fields, we had overlapping interests and that we could combine our skill sets to create a project that would fill a gap that we perceived. A couple of things happened. You know, we both knew from our personal work and previous work within trans communities that there were a lot of older transgender and gender expansive people. We knew that there were issues around access to medical care, access to nursing homes. We knew that people were thinking about growing older while being openly transgender. And that in some ways is a a relatively new occurrence here in the United States, at least on the scale that it is. So we knew those things. We also knew that a lot of older trans folks had been really significant to activism and in many cases paved the way for the world we live in now. And then we also knew that younger trans people didn't have a lot of images of older trans people. There weren't a lot of role models out there. And a lot of the images that did exist or or have existed in the past were either negative or focused on violence of some kind or were overly fetishized. So we knew all of these things and we decided to begin the project that became To Survive on the Shore, where we would photograph and interview people who were over the age of 50 and self-identified as transgender or gender expansive and work towards an exhibition and a book. So there wasn't a period of research or study where you were looking at film or art that got you more than usually aware of, of an absenting of a group of people? Not In particular, I think our awareness came more from our involvement within LGBTQ communities and from our own personal knowledge and previous research and connections we had. You know, I will say for me, I have certainly been very aware of representations of queerness in the art world and in culture at large for a long time, because that's important to me personally, and, and it overlaps with my work, of course, and, and why I make photographs. So I certainly had a, a more broad awareness of what those representations looked like. But I think by the time we came across the idea for this project, we were really ready to to just start making it. 
That's interesting to me personally and professionally because I often hear from art historians that biography is, you know, either not valid or not an important form for art historians, but but there's an example of its importance. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I don't think I knew of that that notion. But yeah, I mean, for me as a photographer more broadly, my work really comes from a, a very personal place and it's it's informed by my own identity. So you know, while I have different projects, some of which are more personal and, and some of which are more documentary leaning, it all is connected in some way to my identity and who I am. And I think with To Survive on This Shore, I imagine it would have been possible to make the work had I not been a part of the community in a, in a more extended sense. But I also think the fact that I was coming at it from inside the community made a, a really significant difference in you know, people trusting my motivations, trusting me as an artist, trusting how I would pr present the work. So for me, I can't separate my my identity or my biography from my photographic work. They're very intertwined. Speaking of that, portraiture, of course, is most often a collaboration between maker and sitter. And when you're working on a project like this over many years, what, five or six years? Mm -hmm. Five years. Five years. And your subject or subjects know that they're going to be presented and seen within a larger whole. Does that impact the, the collaboration, the process of making pictures? So for To Survive on the Shore, as you mentioned, each participant knew what the project would entail. They knew that there would be a portrait and that there would be an interview. And they also knew that it was going to be presented publicly as a collection of images and interviews with people who identify as transgender. So there was an element of awareness on the front end that that certainly required people to, to be willing to be out, to be willing to be public. And so that affected who I photographed and who answered the call to participate for sure. But beyond that, in some ways, the portrait sessions were not necessarily different than my other work, which you know, I, I always go to people's homes or personal spaces. I feel that that's very important. I work very slowly with my camera on a tripod. I use all natural light. I have slow shutter speeds. I do a decent amount of directing of the subject. And that's really in pursuit of directing them into a version of themselves that feels authentic, but is also visually strong. So there's a lot of back and forth. So the, the photo shoots themselves, I wouldn't say were they weren't necessarily very different from how I would, would work in, in any project. I think one thing that was different is that I knew I was trying to make work that represented a very large and very diverse community as accurately as possible. So there was certainly more of a drive to document in a way. A lot of my other portrait work, although it has elements of identity, leans much more subjective. So with To Survive on the Shore, I was thinking a lot about how I was portraying each person, where they were photographed, what that environment said about who they were, how that portrait overlapped with their story. So there were multiple elements at play beyond simply trying to make a beautiful or a visually compelling photograph. Although I will say that also was a significant goal. I, I feel really strongly that it's important to create an image or a portrait that is visually strong and resonant to draw the viewer in, to connect with it on this visceral level, and then to think about all of the additional layers of identity or politics or things like that. So I'm even with this work, of course, I was highly committed to making 
portraits that were dignified and beautiful, but I was also thinking a lot about how to tell each person's story in a way that was authentic to them and also compelling to a broader audience. One more question on making before we get into the pictures themselves. In your conversation with the aforementioned Vanessa Fabre and with curator Karen Irvine in the back of the book of this work that Kara Verlag published in 2018, and which is still available, of course, linkonmanpodcast.com, you mentioned that one of your near rules, as it were, was using natural light. Was that a rule that was specific or specifically important to this project? And if so, why? I am drawn to natural light as a photographer. I love several things about it. One, I love how it looks. I love how it falls on a person. I also love that it forces me to react to the specifics of a space rather than walking in and and having complete control over the environment. I found that that often leads me to make even more dynamic images than I might if I went in with this preconceived idea of how I was going to light it and how I was going to pose someone. So I like that element of having to respond. So that's true through all of my work. But with To Survive on the Shore in particular, I was thinking a lot about representation and particularly representation of a community of people that is often marginalized. And in many cases, the subjects had identities that differed significantly from mine, which has not always been the case for me as much in my other work. So, you know, we were making work across lines of race and class and age and life experience. So I was very conscious of all of those things. And I felt that making a choice to commit to natural light just allowed me to make portraits that felt a bit more dignified. I was very cautious not to go into someone's home and make pictures that felt othering or felt overly voyeuristic. And I know as I'm saying this, that's not what happens for everyone using studio lighting. But I think within the history of photography, there is a bit of of a precedent for that, kind of going into these spaces and showing difference in this way that ends up being a bit more voyeuristic than I think it really should be or that I wanted it for this work. So I made the very conscious decision to use only natural light. And in some cases... I would go to someone's home and it would have particularly bad natural light. And we would often choose to make the portrait outside in a space that still felt personal to them, you know, either in front of their home or in a park that they loved or or, or something like that. Well, let's talk about the pictures themselves. The first picture in the book is titled Sky 64, 64 being an age, Palm Springs. Is Sky the same Sky as in Catherine Opie's Mike and Sky from 1992? And if so, was that important or even foundational to the project? Yes. So Sky is the same Sky. 25 or 30 years on, of course. Correct. And taking a step back, Catherine Opie was a significant influence to me as a younger person and younger photographer, which I'm sure is is not a surprise to anyone, anywhere. (laughs) It's a very obvious connection. But, you know, I discovered her work when I was 16. And, you know, it was really validating to me as a young queer person, but also, of course, influenced me as a photographer and an artist. And so when I was making this project, Sky actually reached out to me. Sky sent me an email and expressed interest in being part of the project. And he was so sweet. He, He wrote, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with 
the Catherine Obi photograph, but this is who I am. And, you know, it was like all I could do not to write back and say, oh my God, I know exactly what page it's on. Of course I know that picture. You know, it's like, it was, it was a, a picture that I had really come of age knowing and looking at. And so I was really excited to photograph him for that reason. I mean, also he is incredibly interesting as a person and I was really drawn to him visually and I and I thought what he had to offer to the project was really important but yes I knew going into it that that Sky and Sky and Mike were the same people from from Catherine Obi's work and but yeah it's definitely important and you know in terms of the project and the book we were really committed to making sure we allowed the portraits and narratives to be complicated. We we wanted to include both struggle and joy. We didn't want to sugarcoat, but we also didn't want to focus only on discrimination or violence. So that was a guiding principle for sure. But beyond that, we also wanted to push back on some assumptions around sexuality or dating life. And so several of the people that we included talked about relationships or sexuality or people that they were dating or things that happened to them later in life. And Sky, in particular, spoke about having been part of the queer women scene in the Bay Area, but also specifically of the leather community. And he really felt strongly that he wanted to have that represented in the portrait and the quote. And that's part of why we chose his leather shirt for the portrait. And that, for me, was also an important reason to start the book with that. I, I, and he also speaks about multiple aspects of, of his identity, one being what I just mentioned, being you know part of the leather community and, and various queer communities over the years, another being in a polyamorous relationship with his partner, long-term partner, and another being a father. He's raising a son who was actually his his daughter's son who passed away. So he spoke about all of these identities. And I really wanted to start the book with a narrative that would immediately let people know that this, this book and this project wasn't catering to stereotypes that, that we have about both older adults, which are, are rampant, and also about people who are transgender or, or gender expansive. So beginning the book with him was was a very intentional choice. And then, of course, there's a, a second portrait later in the book of him with his partner, Mike. And, and that portrait is paired with an interview with Mike. So both of their stories are represented. Speaking of, of that, I'm curious about two kind of interconnected elements here. One, were you conscious of contributing to a trans art history? And secondly, was it important to you to add trans presence to tropes isn't the right word and genres isn't the right word, but to, to visual ideas within art history. And then maybe after I shut up and let you answer, I'll raise a couple of specific pictures in which I wonder if you're doing that. To answer the first part of that question, yes, I was absolutely aware of wanting to contribute portraits and representations to a broader art historical canon you know, my work as a whole centers around identity, and I, I believe very deeply in the importance of representation. And because of that, partially because of that, I identified museums as an ideal home for my work early on. So the primary receptacle for my photographs is, is museums and institutional collections. And because of that, I absolutely think it's important to add representations of of transgender people and more broadly of queer people to these collections where they will be exhibited and 
hopefully included in dialogue with other artists where they will be included in scholarship. So absolutely, I'm very much thinking about how my work could add to an art historical canon. In terms of the tropes, I'm a very formal photographer and I am very influenced by art history. And in particular, I'm influenced by portrait painting. As a younger person, I worked for many years at the Harvard Art Museum and my job was photographing the collection. And so my desk was actually in art storage and I spent eight hours a day photographing their print collection. And beyond that, I spent a lot of time in the museum. And so I just seeped this aesthetic seeped into my brain in a way that, to be totally honest, I didn't even fully realize it at the time. And and so, you know, my, my photographs are very influenced by a larger art historical language and the language of painting and portrait painting. I, I think a lot about gesture and light. In particular, I pay a lot of attention to hands. You know, I love walking through museums and just looking at the hands and paintings and, and thinking about what that gesture implies for the photograph. So the language of art history and the language of other media is certainly present in my work. You know, I often say I'm a capital P photographer, like I very much identify as someone who makes photographs, but my broader language is is influenced by things outside of photography. So there are a couple, I, I mean, I think I could probably raise more than a couple, but but for the sake of our purposes here, there are a couple of pictures that made me wonder how consciously you were addressing art history, whether photographic or, or painting. John, Mount Ida, Arkansas, in which John is not literally emerging from the water, but he's standing lakeside. And, you know, to an art nerd, when someone is, is standing lakeside, kind of one leg a little bit ahead of the other, we inevitably think of two things, a Venus, but also a Cezanne. And I wonder if any of those constructions were informing you? You know, I, I never consciously respond to a specific piece, as in, you know, Kahindi Wiley, for example, but the language is always there in my mind, and I very much own that and, and talk about that. So I'm sure on some level that was there for me subconsciously. You know, I've always been interested in that particular stance because I find that it speaks about gender in an interesting way and it speaks about vulnerability in an interesting way and you know particularly putting a, a masculine or male person in that pose I think complicates the conversation so that's part of what I was thinking about in terms of the landscape specifically John spoke about being a very active hiker and he had actually had some significant struggles that he overcame health-wise and mental health-wise. And part of how he overcame those was by taking up hiking and spending a lot of time in the landscape where he lived. He lived in rural Arkansas, which is not an easy place to be trans. And so that's the reason that I placed him in that location, because it was important to him. But yes, certainly all of these art historical references are, are there in my mind. And I'm, again, I'm not thinking of them consciously. It's not like I take an image of a painting and, and kind of try to recreate it, but but it's definitely present in my subconscious. And, and I am really interested. I mean, consciously, part of what I'm interested in in my work is fusing a very classical style of portraiture and representation with a very contemporary subject matter. And that's something that came naturally to me early on, but I've also come to understand that it acts as this entrance point in a way that 
that another style might not might not do so well. And so that is something I do consciously employ. But but yes, I, I do not I do not intentionally reference a specific work, but the language is present for sure. Finally, one of the things that's present in quite literally every portrait in the series is that the sitter looks right at us, is looking right into the lens of your camera. I guess less as an art historical question than just I'm kind of curious. Was that something you had to tell people, your sitters, to do, or did it just kind of work out that way? Yeah, that's definitely something that's very intentional on my part. It's something that I've always been drawn to organically from the very beginning of my work, but consciously I use direct eye contact for a couple of reasons. One is to really allow the subject to take some ownership of their portrait and present themselves to the audience, you know, to me, and then of course, by extension to the audience, I feel that there's a lot of power in that gaze. And it, it, it makes it very clear that they know they're being photographed. It, it speaks to the consent of our engagement. It speaks about their willingness to show themselves. And I think that's really important. And for me, the second reason is that I find that it really activates the viewer and it requires someone to really engage with a person that they might be uncomfortable with, or they might not know a lot about, or they might have, you know, assumptions or stereotypes about. And I refuse to let them gaze passively upon the other. I ask them to engage in a, a very human way and in hopefully a meaningful way. Part of what I'm trying to do in my work is not just to share specific stories, but to actually activate the viewer to think about their own identities and their own reaction to the work and their own thoughts and assumptions about the people that they're looking at. And I find by using direct eye contact, it really facilitates that kind of interaction. Jess T. Dugan, thank you. Thank you so much, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.